0: Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk. I'm Keith Manconi. It is only a few days now until the inauguration of President-elect Tsai Ing-wen, and the public has a lot of expectations for her presidency. But perhaps one of the most anticipated and controversial pledge is that to confront Taiwan's authoritarian past by carrying out a program of transitional justice. Of course, for many... Such a program would be a welcome and long-awaited opportunity to address historical wrongs. But there really is no way to untangle history from modern politics. And many see here nothing more than a thinly-veiled pretext to carry out a political vendetta against the KMT and its members. So this term transitional justice, you know, it appeals to human rights. It appeals to a deeper sense of historical justice. But there are many different ways to view it. So to get some clarity, we're going to be speaking today to Dr. Ernest Caldwell. He lectures in Chinese law at the School of Oriental and African Studies School of Law in London. He also studies human rights in Asia, and he joins us now. Dr. Ernest Caldwell, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Just to start things out, I mean, this term, uh, transitional justice, it's, it's very abstract, almost wonky. Uh, I imagine some of our, our listeners may not know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, but, I mean, that's also because I, I think a lot of observers here don't know what we're talking about. I mean, over the last couple of months, we've had uh, a number of forums in uh, throughout Taiwan kind of trying to answer the question, what could transitional justice mean uh, in the Thai administration? How exactly could she carry out uh, this program that is aimed at you know confronting some of the more troubling parts of Taiwan's history? Uh, so maybe you could just get us started by laying out some of the possibilities of what this could mean.
1: There are actually just numerous things because the concept of trans- transitional justice itself is fairly broad, and it is meant and been interpreted and been applied in various ways via UN resolutions, via um, various different countries that have had to deal and different regimes that have had to deal with a transitional justice issue. And if you look at these comparatively, they've all been different and in, in sometimes in very key ways from the taiwan experience and from what you can i've been able to gather from various as you said academics from the public as well as from political figures Transitional justice can mean a lot of things right now in Taiwan, Um, and I think that one of the key issues that needs to come up is sort of prioritizing what transitional justice is going to mean, um, especially for the general public as well as for the new administration coming in. And so we've seen in the past, for example, um, even during uh, the KMT era um, of the 1990s, Transitional justice meant um, oftentimes truth-finding, acknowledgement of various acts carried out during the martial law period. So you have the acknowledgement of the 228 incident. Um, The aftermath of that, you have the setting up of compensation commissions and investigation commissions for victims and family members of victims. So there's already a history there um, that people can draw on when they think about what transitional justice would be and can look like in the future. You also have during the Chen Shui-bian era, um, for example, changing of names, um, removing of statues. Uh... To an extent, um, these some of this has been reversed by the KMT once the DPP lost the, the presidency. But what I think is interesting at sort of at this moment, we have what could be considered sort of a, a new transitional justice moment is that for the first time, you have the KMT not in complete control over the government. So you have a legislature that is DPP-dominated, and you also have the presidency, um, and soon the incoming cabinet as well will be sort of a DPP, and Tsai one, Select Committees. So I think this moment you could actually see um, a potential for the government to either expand transitional justice or perhaps create um, a new space for new thinking about what traditional justice could actually become.
0: Right. So you're kind of referring right there to uh, past attempts to carry out uh, some form of transitional justice. So this is not, uh, you know, a new idea. This is not a new program to Taiwan. Uh, attempts have been made in the past. Uh, so, you know, some would question uh, whether or not this is necessary at this point. You know, democracy has been around in Taiwan for a number of decades now. Uh, some might ask, you know, isn't it time to move on and uh, really just uh, pursue a normal political agenda, the bread and butter issues that really affect people's day to day lives, uh but then others are clearly of the opinion that uh, this is unfinished business uh transitional justice is not complete uh so what what do you see is is behind uh, that attitude? Why does that attitude uh that you know there's still more to be done? why does that still exist?
1: Um, I think it exists for several reasons. And I think one reason is, in many ways, the unique position of Taiwan in the overall scheme of, com- of sort of comparative transitional justice. Because in many places, if you look, for example, at the sort of the post-Nazi regime um, or the fall of various Soviet states, oftentimes the former regime was dissolved. And so you have a rather quick relatively quick transitional moment um wherein the people um or various commissions, et cetera, can come in and sort of deal with transitional justice in a more a quicker method, perhaps. Um, but with Taiwan, it had a very slow democratic transition um, comparatively. And it also had a transition wherein the dominant party, the one party state party, the KMT, never disappeared and actually remained in power for a long time. And so the elements of transitional justice that were established during their, um, sort of during the early democratization period, can be seen by a lot of people, I think, as insufficient because they were still done on the terms of the KMT. And so what people are wanting now, perhaps, is an expansion of what's going on. So yes, you had compensation claims. Yes, you had investigations into individual claims. Um, But the truth-finding commissions, many people think, had their limitations. There are still archives of the KMT that have not been made open. It's one of the things that the DPP has been um, arguing for, is the need for truth. So one of the primary arguments that the the, the DPP platform has been making is that truth commissions, um, sort of a more independent truth commission that is not necessarily tied to the KMT, Um, is needed in order to open up more archives. And if you look at the sample legislation that's being discussed right now in the legislative UN on uh, transitional justice, one of the big things is creating a commission um, for a quasi-independent commission under the executive Um, to basically uncover and unlock all the archives, both political and government archives that have been closed off, um, even to the individuals who were doing the first commission report back in the 1990s. So that's something I think that they're really pushing for. And one thing that makes it easy for people to look back and say, well, transitional justice hasn't really come full circle yet. It hasn't been completed in a way. Um, And another example, I think, would be uh the february and march incidents over um the white terror documents that made international headlines both from uh the case of Mr. Wei who was taken in question by the military police um as well as the uh 170 something uh personal letters of individuals who were executed um during the white terror period that post 2008 slowly made their way to the individual families um, that they were um, given. And this actually made headlines in the New York Times. And so I think for a lot of people, um, in a way, the truth is still out there. um, And a lot of people are hoping that Taiwan can, in some way, this new government can increase uh, the awareness and the transparency of actually what happened during that time period.
0: Right. But then, you know, we, of course, need to look at the flip side of all of this. Some people see transitional justice. Uh, Others see retribution. You know, Uh, obviously, the DPP uh, would frame this as pursuing past historical wrongs, trying to address human rights uh, abuses. Um, But obviously, the form that this would take is the folks in power, the DPP, uh, carrying out. Uh, inquiries and maybe even trials uh, against what would largely be members of the KMT. I mean, almost exclusively, it would be focused on uh, members of the KMT. So uh, it's very easy to see how this could become uh, politicized quickly and at least be viewed uh, as, you know, political antagonism uh, more than anything else. Uh, so is there a way to, you know, do this without ha- having politics front and center, without politics crowding out uh, the, the, you know, legitimate goals of airing out historical grievances? Is that possible?
1: The short answer is no. <laughs> it's as unfortunate as it is. Um, it cannot not be political in a way. Um, I think one reason why, as I said, the transitional justice is such a big issue is that because it's become a political force, because you now have a political party that has been advocating various aspects of it, um, and they haven't really had that voice, and now they actually do. So it's definitely political in a way. Um, Furthermore, as you mentioned, the assets, um, party assets, are something that's a big call uh, for transitional justice. And the assets that are being examined are the KMT assets. It's still one of the wealthiest parties, political parties in the world. Um, And so the fact that you have a party asset bill that's being discussed right now in the legislature, it can't not, I think, in a way, be interpreted by people, especially in the KMT – As something pointed directly towards them when for 60 plus years, um, that's basically the reason why a lot of this is coming up is because of the assets that the KMT has. Um, What it could possibly do is make everyone accountable, sort of equal across the board if these acts get passed. Um, But still, I think the biggest losers in this will be um, the KMT if they do pass and they do have to actually divulge all their party assets and the histories of those of the obtaining of those assets.
0: So, you know, I think we've already laid out there why this is going to be such a, a delicate and difficult project. But Taiwan is by no means the first country to confront uh, this set of issues. Uh, so I mean, do you think that there's any historical precedent that Taiwan could refer to? Obviously, you mentioned Germany a second ago. Uh, Korea also went through, you know, its own uh, version of transitional justice. Uh, is there anything that Taiwan can learn from those experiences? Uh, or, you know, is is Taiwan's own unique uh, situation too particular? Uh, is it, you know, really just going to have to figure out its own path?
1: Well, I think it'll definitely have to figure out its own path because of its uniqueness, but it doesn't mean that it can't draw on other experiences. Um, and I think the South Korean case is interesting because um you have uh the President Park geun hee who has a very intimate past with sort of um a heavy-handed period of the of South Korean past. And in some ways, she has a similar position as Tsai ing because she came into a South Korean government that was having to deal with some fairly significant economic problems. Um, so there were very sort of practical, real-world government issues that were confronting. But she also did a great deal um, sort of personally to revive sort of transitional justice thinking in South Korea. The negative aspect of that, while some of her her transitional justice issues were successful, Um, the economy hasn't been great in South Korea and her party also lost um, their majority. Um, The lesson I think that one could take from this is that while Tsai Ing-wen now has a fairly strong mandate, um, both within the legislature and her own sort of personal mandate via the, the recent election, the problem with transitional justice and the sort of, Asset the, the legislation and, and acts they're trying to push right now, in many ways they have a long-term perspective, um, but given the political situation, she has a lot of other things that, she has to, that the government has to do in order to make uh, this government last longer than just four years. And I think that's something that definitely needs to be considered um, when pushing transitional justice, that there are a lot of other things. And so the transitional justice that could be initiated in four years could be turned around um, if – they lose the the parliament or if they lose um, the presidency uh, the next go around.
0: Right. And that is, of course, a criticism that's kind of leveled against uh, transitional justice projects uh, from, you know, the, the bluer side of the political spectrum. Uh, that argument basically being that, you know, there's already so many pressing issues uh, for its side to confront, energy policy, uh, economic policy, uh, international relations, all of that. Uh, that, you know, if she spends all of her political capital, if the legislature is bogged down in fights over uh, historical issues, you know, there's not going to be any room for uh, her to move forward uh, with any other part of her agenda. So, uh, I mean, if this project was really central to uh, what her administration is doing, could it become an impediment for her to pursue those other goals?
1: Well, I think it will depend. I mean, right now, I think the issue is that, In the legislature, the DPP has a fairly strong majority, and so that, along with their other coalitions, for instance with the MPP, will make it so that it's not as difficult um, to push through uh, legislation in the near future, at least. But I think part of the question will be how aggressively um, the new government wants to push this as sort of a top priority issue and how much sort of political capital that would expend um, and what the actual gain would be. If it gives people a sense of unity um, and the problem with transitional justice for fairly long historical Um, past abuses is that it can actually create a great deal of fragmentism in society as opposed to um, unifying and so I think that if this is pushed aggressively then there needs to be fairly clear outcomes other than just truth so bringing up a purported truth can hurt as well as heal certain wounds Um, and so I think the question will become Well, once the truth is there and out what's the next step Coming up, and so, from the legislation that i 've seen so far, a lot of the truth commission type issues um, are merely just divulging all the information, getting everything out in the open. But what actually comes of that, I think will be um, will let us know really the success of the transitional justice and whether or not whatever level of um, however aggressively tying one pushes this. Um, whether or not it was worth it in the end, when you do have, you know, a, a flagging economy right now um, and other big issues that are um, that are very prevalent, if this is, becomes the top priority and it doesn't really come up with much and the economy continues to crash, then this could be extremely problematic for a second term and for the DPP in the next parliamentary elections.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that we've laid out there, you know, some of the potential uh, room for challenges, some of the perils that could lie ahead uh, for this sort of project. Uh, let's talk now about, you know, what is the promise of transitional justice? Uh, you know, if, if such a program is, is really carried out, it's really successful, how does that change society? Uh, wh- what does it look like uh, when a democracy has finally completed that uh, and moved to a better place?
1: I think on one level, um, it would be a society that is highly informed. So the truth commission aspect, I think, is very important um, if it can carry out its procedures and its investigations with a certain degree of independence and with a full disclosure of archives um, as the current legislation is requesting um, that government and political archives be opened up. So having a society that can know fairly precisely um, or what had happened, or at least read the materials and draw their own conclusions with the fullest possible amount of source material, I think is very important because that allows people in many ways to sort of situate themselves within society. What themselves, their families, um, their friends, neighbors... What happened to them? Having that doubt and those questions answered, I think, is very important and allows people to sort of mentally reintegrate um, into a more unified society where everyone, in a way, knows where they stand vis-a-vis the historical past um, of the martial law period um, in Taiwan. That, I think, is very important. Um, And I think the other thing would be uh, what... I think most people in, in most parties want is a clear understanding of the assets of, to be quite frank, the assets of the KMT, where they came from, the overall um, amount um, of these assets and understanding which are or not um, illicitly attained and then what to do with those? So, in some instances, comparatively, people um, in Germany, for instance, after the fall of um, East Germany, a lot of the former Soviet assets were um, taken in, placed in trust, and are used for very public things, so parks, performances, um, supporting research projects, etc. Um, if something like this could happen in Taiwan, it would be good. But showing that the assets, once they're declared, and discovered what actually happens to those assets becomes very important, um, and how the government, if they're given that option um, to do something with these assets, what they do with them can really would be I think a very important um, step for judging whether or not transitional justice has been successful in various stages.
0: Now I want to ask kind of a difficult question. I mean, difficult in terms of I, I, I honestly feel uncomfortable even asking it, um, because we do hold, you know, human rights, uh, and uh you know a sense of uh fundamental justice to be sacrosanct and you know, incredibly important uh fundamental values for any society, especially a democratic society. Um but you know, does there come a point where the practical issues, the practical considerations uh of pursuing a campaign like this and what it could mean in terms of the pushback, uh, in terms of uh, the distraction, in terms of all the uh, all the difficulties that could come with it. Is there a point at which transitional justice uh, is simply is not viable? It's not you know, worth it, to put it kind of crassly. Uh, is that a legitimate question to ever be asking?
1: I think that it's certainly a temptation to think that in many aspects. I mean, if you look at tribunals that have taken place um, in parts of Southeast Asia, um, with Laos, Cambodia, uh, discussions over uh, Myanmar, looking at places like Rwanda, you're also dealing with places with extreme economic problems, um, but also very, very divided societies with large proportion of the society that has suffered um, extreme abuses. So I think that the temptation is always there, but it hasn't necessarily stopped um, that from coming up. And I think that on the one hand, the political gain from it, um, and this is political gain from both sides, it allows politics, if you have a transitional justice um, taking place, and if you have at least the ability to or at least a consciousness that transitional justice to certain extents has taken place. Um, It allows politics in many ways to move beyond a sole focus where transitional justice is not the primary focus of politics um, as it sort of turned into towards the later aspects of the, the more recent political campaigns. And it allows focus on the economy, um, et cetera, those types of issues. Um, It also allows you to sort of look afresh at social issues um, that may in part be based upon sort of the the old mainland or Taiwanese divide. Um, If these types of issues have sort of been ameliorated and you now have a more stable sort of social consciousness, then I think that there is gain to be had from there. But I think the question is always the extent to which um, one wants to push all of their capital into transitional justice at the expense of other issues.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, you know, just kind of following uh, the logic that you're laying out there, uh, I I guess it's kind of counterintuitive, but it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, in the short run, you know, perhaps there would be a fairly uh, high cost, a fair amount of political capital some societal strife, all that uh, in the short run. But then in the long run, you know, society really can't get past uh, some of these old wounds. uh, You know, in some ways it could bring the democracy to a better place where, you know, uh, a lot of uh, these deeply divisive historical issues take a backseat for good. And, you know, the more bread and butter issues can uh, be debated in a a cleaner way where, you know, all of that baggage isn't front and center.
1: Right. I I think that's definitely the case. It lets them not necessarily take a back seat for good, but it allows them to occupy a space that is not as central um, as it may be. It allows it not to be as much of a hot-button topic that for example, an opposing party can keep in their back pocket and pull out at the first sign of a political struggle. Um, So I think that transitional justice is, in many ways, a a long-term game. It's not something that can be done quickly. Um, I doubt it's something that can be done within a single presidential or legislative term. Um, But you can actually set up the steps for that um, quite well if it's done with um, sensitivity, etc. cetera, um, I, I think the steps can be taken um, quite positively.
0: All right. Well, we are going to uh, end this very important conversation on that note today. Uh, we have been speaking to Dr. Ernest Caldwell. He lectures once again in Chinese law at the School of Oriental and African Studies School of Law in London. Uh, Dr. Caldwell, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you all for listening to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk. Taiwan Talk is, of course, ICRT's weekly interview segment bringing you conversations from and about Taiwan. You can find the broadcast version every Monday at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. right after the the top-of-the-hour newscast. You can also find it online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, and the ICRT blog. Please do leave a comment while you're there. We really appreciate hearing your perspective. Uh, Of course, Tsai Ing-wen's inauguration speech is going to be this Friday, uh, just a little bit after 11am. The other show that I host, Taiwan This Week, uh, is going to be devoting the entire segment this Friday to going over what was in that inauguration speech uh, and kind of looking at the significance for uh, what it could mean for cross-strait relations, uh, what it could mean for US-Taiwan relations, and, uh, you know, just what it portends for the Tsai administration. So uh, look for that show. Uh, Once again, it's Taiwan This Week. That broadcast at 8.30 p.m. this Friday. Look for it there. Uh, Or you can also find that online. There will be an extended podcast version of that as well. Uh, You can find that in all the same places you find Taiwan Talk. Uh, Just search for it, Taiwan This Week. All right. So uh, all that good stuff coming up uh, later this week. But we're going to have to leave this show right here. See you again next time. Uh, Thanks once again from ICRT and Taiwan Talk. I'm Keith Menconi.